And let's close our eyes in prayer before hearing the word. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we give thanks, Lord, uh, that we have you that would bend so low as to speak to us, to be able to communicate and bring us to you. Father, I pray this morning as we've heard the readings, as we hear this message, Lord, that you would speak. And Father, that we might hear and know, Lord, what it means for Jesus to have come, to have lived the life that he did, Lord, to have fulfilled our salvation and your plan for it throughout history. Heavenly Father, let this be more uh, than just another Christmas for us, but be refreshed in your work on earth and your salvation for us, in our ability to be able to worship and give thanks and have peace during this Christmas given by you and your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I'm not sure what your experience has been of this passage from Matthew chapter 2, but mine has been extremely limited. The mention of Jesus and his family's flight to Egypt and return to Nazareth, as well as Herod's murder of the children in Bethlehem, in my experience, has always been kept very brief as though it were footnotes in the Bible that have been accidentally included into the main text, never mind the three mentions of fulfilled prophecy. Yet it is in these verses that as much as in the passages that we have already covered in the last few weeks, that we see God's plan for salvation coming into fulfilment through this young child, Jesus. Even as a child, following the divinely given dreams of his earthly father, Jesus is bringing about the fulfillment of his heavenly father's designs. Designs for his people to be set free from the kingdom of darkness and given a new hope of life with their Lord who loves them. You will have noticed in our reading from Matthew this morning, that the Gospel writer refers a number of times back into the Old Testament prophets. It happens three times in this passage. Once at the end of Joseph, Mary and Jesus' flight in the night and consequential return. Once again in speaking of the infanticide Herod commits. And again when the family returns and settles in Nazareth rather than in Bethlehem. This morning we're going to spend time dwelling in each of these prophecies and drawing from them what it meant for Jesus to fulfill them. Now these prophecies are not even the first mentioned in this book. Even by uh, by the time we get to chapter 2, Matthew has noted that Jesus has already fulfilled two prophecies. The first, that Jesus would be born of a virgin and named Emmanuel. And the second, that the town of Bethlehem would produce a ruler that would shepherd God's people, Israel. But these prophets, prophecies are a little different to the ones that we'll be speak, speaking on this morning. 
They spoke specifically about the way in which the Messiah was to come. And Matthew is simply saying, this is that. He's connecting the dots from the Old Testament to the New. But in the prophetic fulfillment of our passage, it's not quite the same. Rather than connecting dots, Matthew begins to overlay historical patterns. He sees how Jesus is called out of Egypt. And it's just like how Israel was called out of Egypt. Matthew is looking at the history of God's people and seeing the outlines of God's salvation designs repeating now in the life of Jesus. Only it's in Christ, as we will see, that they're no longer simply outlines but fully coloured in pictures of grace. He is the fulfilment of God's plans made through history. Matthew is looking at Christ like 3D glasses at history and suddenly everything is beginning to come alive and pop out at him. And in doing so, he brings us to a far greater and meaningful understanding of the Old Testament and just what it means for Jesus to have come in the flesh. In this passage, he brings us to fix our hearts and minds on three aspects of God's salvation that find fulfilment in Jesus. The first is this. <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> sorry, Jesus is the firstborn son of God called out from the kingdom of darkness to be with his heavenly father and that through him we and all believers like us no longer reside in that dark kingdom but likewise reside with the father. Now at this point in the narrative, young Jesus is no older than two years of age though he may be younger. The Magi from the east that came to worship this child king from Bethlehem have just left. And having been warned in a dream by God, returned home by a different route. A route that would not take them back to Herod, the current king of the time. A king that we know from verse 4 is more than a little troubled. Oh, thank you, Ray more than a little troubled by the news of this new potential rival to his reign and is willing to take steps to see that he is dead and destroyed. And it's not long after, long after the Magi leave that Joseph also receives a dream. Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And immediately Joseph bundles up the family and leaves for Egypt. It may have even been that same night. And they leave and live likely with a community of Jews in Egypt. Until they are called upon again by the Lord to leave and return. Because Herod has died. The current Herod. It is this calling of the Lord to leave Egypt that, Matthew, that sparks for Matthew some recognition of historical pattern. This has happened once before. 
the Lord had called his son from Egypt before. Look at the Lord's words to Moses in Midian as he sends him back to Egypt to call Israel out. Found in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. And of course, we know the story that follows. God draws his people from the kingdom that has oppressed and caused suffering. He draws them to himself to worship and to serve him alone. And he does it in a spectacular display of love and power, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. So there is a likeness of salvific pattern here. Jesus is rescued from the threat of Herod, like Israel is from Pharaoh. And Jesus is called from the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan, as Israel was. But that's not all that Matthew is hinting at here. Because the prophecy Matthew points to is not in the book of Exodus, but in the book of Hosea. (coughs) And it's in Hosea that we see this salvation pattern beginning to take a little more colour around the edges. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to Baals and offering incense to idols. The mo- <laughs> my goodness, that wasn't almost a vomit, it was just a cough. Uh, <laughs> the more I called them, the more they went from me. Does this sound like anyone else's kids? Hosea is showing us an aspect of God's pattern, salvation pattern, that is deeper than merely leaving the physical place of Egypt. God called his son not just to leave Egypt, but to leave the kingdom of darkness and worship him. Now they left the place of Egypt, but they never left that dark kingdom. They kept sacrificing to Baals and offering incense to idols. My people, it says in verse 7, are bent on turning away from me. This is the people called the Son of God. So the pattern Hosea is pointing to in Egypt is an outline at best of salvation. Because the people never heeded the deeper call of God to his son. To leave off worshipping the things of the world and serve him. We even have these beautiful verses in 3 and 4. Speaking of the Lord as Israel's loving father. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. 
I bent down to them and fed them. But these verses are followed by a devastating declaration that his son, Israel, will return back to the same kingdom of darkness, return back to Egypt, back to Assyria's rule. Why? Because they have refused to return to me, says the Lord. But, and praise God, there is a but, but Jesus. He doesn't repeat the pattern, but fulfills it. He is not just the son that leaves Egypt, but having been born into this world as a human being, tempted and tried, rejected and oppressed, he heeds the father's call in its fullness. The father says in a voice from heaven at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the centurion who faced, who stood facing Jesus on the cross when he saw that he had breathed his last said, truly, this man was God's son. Here, finally, truly, completely, is the Son of God who does not refuse the call of the Lord to leave the kingdom of darkness and worship him forever. Here is a son who heeds his father, who loves him, who fulfills this pattern with colour and brilliance. Even though this obedience to the father would one day lead him to the cross. He is the perfect firstborn son. So that, even as we heard this morning from David's reading, all that believe in him may be called children of God. Not like Israel was, but like Christ was. Not alongside Jesus in our own floundering sonship, but in his To believe in Jesus is to take part in his glorious, fulfilled sonship. Having been called by God, having already left the kingdom of darkness and being caught up in the worship of the Father. That is the first aspect of God's salvation plan fulfilled in Jesus that we're speaking on this morning. And the second is this. That Jesus is an end to hopeless tears. While Jesus and his family took refuge in Egypt, Herod took action. Upon the realisation that the Magi were not going to return, he sought to guarantee an end to any possibility that this child king would come to power. And so he ordered the death of all male children aged two and under in Bethlehem. In a town like Bethlehem, with a population of around a 1,000 people, this would mean the death of around 20 male children. An act, I am certain, that would have devastated all the families of the town. And it's in reflecting on this sorrow that Matthew remembers a similar time again in Israel's history, another pattern 
a time when the people of Israel were taken by the enemy and marched away from home. It was the time of the Assyrian invasion. And Jeremiah, the prophet of the time and prophet that Matthew quotes, says this from the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, Rachel, if you remember your biblical history well, was the wife of Jacob. And she, along with Leah, gave birth to the fathers and tribes of Israel. Rachel died when giving birth to the youngest of the sons, Benjamin. And becoming, and she in that became known amongst the people as the mother of Israel. And she was buried outside of Ramah, not far from Bethlehem. And now at this time of Assyrian exile, at this time of great lament, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah of sorrow as though Rachel buried not far from there were alive and bitterly weeping for her children, refusing any comfort that could be offered. Why? Because they are no more. Because of the loss, yes, but also because of the hopelessness of their situation. They will not return. They are gone forever. And Matthew sees this pattern again in Jesus' time, repeated in the deaths of these children in Bethlehem. They are lost and without hope of being returned to their mother's arms. Have you known such sorrow as the women of Bethlehem, as Rachel, that of a child being lost without hope? We know that this sort of loss is not limited to that of death. A child or a loved one or even ourselves can be lost in more ways than death has to offer. We can think of sickness, of poor life decisions. But I think the most impactful loss of a child is one where they have stepped away from the Lord. When they do not seem to hear or see the hope of Jesus and choose instead another path than what we have hoped and prayed for for them. There would be few parents that have not felt the sting of tears or sorrow and worry over a child that appears to be lost without hope of finding the Lord. But Jesus, the fulfilment Jesus brings to this prophecy is more, far more than comfortless sorrow. We listen to the verses that follow the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, 
says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. This pattern of salvation does not end in hopeless sorrow for the lost, but finds fulfillment in a hope of their return. Those lost to exile will one day be returned back to the promised land, back into the arms of the Lord, into Rachel's arms. So while the women of Bethlehem weep, Matthew sees the presence of Jesus as the end of hopeless weeping. He makes a way for us to return to the Father. There is now hope for our future. Now this is not to say that there is no place for tears in the Christian life. There is. The Psalms are filled with them. Our lives are filled with them. But they are not tears now that do not also have a glimmer of hope. And that hope makes a powerful difference to those lost and to those that are mourning. Five years ago, my own parents wept over the loss of a child. My younger brother had died from heart failure. The weeping that began on that day has not dried up. But if you had been present at the funeral or in a family home, you would have known that although there were tears over terrible loss and pain, they were not tears that were shed without hope because my brother believed. He had a saviour. He was a son of God. For my parents, for my mother, like those in Bethlehem, like Rachel, Jesus is a very real end to hopeless tears. And the difference this makes is not measurable. I have another sibling, a sister that does not have faith in Jesus as her saviour. And tears have been shed there as well. She is lost. But they are not hopeless tears. For Jesus has made a way for her to return. Just as he made one for you and for me and for all of those that we hold dear. Praise God for that. That is the second Fulfillment of God's salvation plan in Jesus. The first was his answer to God's call from the kingdom of darkness and the second an end to hopeless tears. And here is the third. Jesus fully represents the despised and the rejected. Upon returning to Israel, Joseph grew fearful of the new Herod, a son of the old. And being guided in a dream, takes the family to settle in Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled what the prophet spoke, he will be called a Nazarene. Now this seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? So far we've simply had to look back at the old prophecies that Matthew references to gain greater insight as to the pattern that Jesus is fulfilling. Yet here there is no prophecy in the Old Testament. Instead, it refers to a common theme spoken by many prophets. 
and it was a very unpopular theme at the time, that of the Messiah's lowliness. A clear example is found in the well-known Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Now being associated with the town of Nazareth, despite its Davidic lineage, helped in earning Jesus the reputation of being undesirable. You see, the town of Nazareth was found in the region of Galilee, a region that held a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And you can hear Nathaniel's words in John describing people's attitudes towards Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Certainly, this was not the home of the Messiah. Jesus was lowly in the eyes of those that saw him. And it wasn't just because of where he called home. But like the other prophecies, there was something that is still deeper here. Jesus was lowly of heart. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. For Matthew, this was of critical importance because it showed Jesus as being intimately accessible to all people, not just the people that have life together from birth, who are dealt a good hand of cards from the get-go or can pull themselves together by sheer willpower and clever thinking. Good family, wealth, well-fed, well-dressed, well-educated, temple three times a week. If that had been Jesus, what was everybody else supposed to do? Where were those who struggled and were rejected, who sinned, And filled with regret, where were they supposed to go? Where was their hope? How could they approach him? Where was Matthew's hope? Jesus met him when he was a tax collector. From Matthew 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, 
Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Lowliness was at the core of our Saviour. It's not one of his extremities, like a hand or a foot. But in his own words, it was part of his heart. That he might be intimately accessible to the sinners and tax collectors of this world. And this makes a tremendous difference. While in Mobilong, I and John, even more so, have encountered men that are lowly. Dealt cards from birth and made decisions in life that leave them looked upon by some people as less than people anymore. And to have a Jesus that was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth makes a huge difference to them and their willingness to approach him. And it's the same for us. Were the sins of your heart exposed to the world, how would you feel? How would people see us? It's certainly a fear that I wrestle with, more now as a pastor than ever. To fear rejection, disdain, humiliation from those that we desire affection or approval. But Jesus is a Nazarene. He sits with tax collectors and sinners. He sits with prisoners. And he would sit with you. He would take your hopeless tears away and give you his own precious sonship. Leading you to the Father. This is what it means for Christ to have fulfilled this passage. Now, it must be said that these three prophecies do not give a full picture of what it means for Jesus to completely fulfill God's salvation plan in history. But it's a few more of those wonderful pieces that we can hold on to and treasure of what it meant for him to come as flesh and blood to the world and to do it in the way that he did. To live the life that he did. Worshipped by magi in a moment. Pursued by hate-fueled kings in the next. To live in a foreign country, then in a poorly reputed neighbourhood. All that he does is more than a story. But the very satisfaction of our salvation that we may read and know today that we can approach Jesus and through him become children of God, already having heard and left the kingdom of darkness, filled with hope for those yet to come home and join us. Let's pray and give thanks to our Lord. Heavenly Father, 
we give thanks for your son. We hear the angels coming and giving direction to Joseph and know, Lord, that it is, it is at your will that the son moves and that we see your heart as exposed here, Heavenly Father, as we see your sons, a desire for us to come home to you. And through your son, you have made a way. Not only that we might be called children, Lord, but that we might be set free from the kingdom of darkness and come to you to worship and to serve in fullness. Lord, that when we struggle, we can approach you. When we see those near us who appear lost, we can cry out and know that there is hope in Christ. We are so blessed by your love, Heavenly Father. We just give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.